um, I want to invite you uh, to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're looking for it in your Bibles or your electronic devices, you, you look for the book of Psalms, which followed by the book of Proverbs, which is followed by the book of Ecclesiastes. And my aim this morning is to introduce a new sermon series entitled, Under the Sun. Under the Sun seemed an appropriate theme for summer, but perhaps more significantly, Under the Sun is a phrase the author of Ecclesiastes uses 30 times in this 12-chapter book. And under the sun, or under heaven, as on a couple of occasions he rephrases it, it refers to life in this world on this side of eternity. This created world under the sun is not only the location where God has appointed us to live for a brief time, This created world under the sun is also a teacher, an appointed and prepared teacher by God himself from which we are meant to learn. Commentators refer to Ecclesiastes as that, quote, strangest of Old Testament books. Professor Derek Kidner voices a question that many have asked through the years, namely, what is this book doing in the Bible? Zach Eswine, a professor at Covenant Seminary down in Kansas City, and I, I would recommend, uh, for those of you who just want to go a little deeper into um, Ecclesiastes for the summer, Zach Eswine has written a book called Recovering Eden, highly Highly recommend it. Here's what he has to say. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. Looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. Such is the book we have chosen to linger in for the summer. Not exactly beach reading, I suppose you might say. But nevertheless, um, part of the brilliance of the book of Ecclesiastes is that it, it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and can be perplexing. And it teaches us this by being itself elusive and perplexing. Is there any better way to explain how life can leave you scratching your head than by writing a book that leaves you scratching your head? (laughs) In other words, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is mirrored in the effect of the book of Ecclesiastes. That is... In content and in structure, Ecclesiastes makes a simple point. Life is complex and messy and sometimes brutally so. 
but there is also a straightforward way to look at the mess. And the end will put it all right. That's not just the message, that's the structure of the book. The end, that is, when we stand before God as our creator and judge, will explain everything. And the wisdom in this, the truth of this, is something of which a spiritual community like ours cannot get too much. Make us, Lord, a deeper people. Make us wiser. Make us a people who, like you, are not afraid to be transparent, not afraid of mystery, not afraid of emotion, not afraid of an infinite, uh, intimate familiarity with all the beauties and all the messes of people and things. So teach us how to live under the sun. That, that's, that's the aim of this book. As many a wise person, I believe, has learned, it's the destination that makes sense of the journey. In other words, if we know for sure where we're heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Someone has so famously said, begin with the end in view. Now, now, the reason that's so significant is because our natural tendency is to do just the opposite. We tend to live life forward, right? At least, at least I, I know that I do. One day follows another, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. And though we don't know exactly what the future precisely will hold, or we, we certainly don't have control over our future in an ultimate sense, we nevertheless, we plan, we hope, we dream of where we're going to be what we're going to be doing, and with whom we're going to do it with. That's living life forward. But this strange book, entitled Ecclesiastes, teaches us to live life backwards. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is absolutely certain. And we're not talking about taxes. We're talking about death. The one thing in the future that's absolutely certain, namely our death, and then work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our life experience and to, and to then frame them through the perspective of the end. And so our aim together with God, the ultimate author of the book of Ecclesiastes, as well as the inspired human author of the book of Ecclesiastes, is to persuade you this summer, as we're doing life under the sun, that only if you prepare to die, and to die well, can you really learn how to live? So let's begin. And I'm going to invite you to follow along as I read the first 11 verses of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. The words of 
the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's word. Let's pray. We're approaching, Lord, this text as your word to us. You're addressing us. You're communicating yourself to us. It's a different sounding word. And we pray that as it sounds so different that you would accomplish the purpose of that, namely getting our attention in a very different, deeper, more substantial, arresting way. We're asking, Lord, that over the course of these next three months as we give attention to this book, oh, that you would communicate yourself in a way that bears fruit, the fruit of wisdom, the fruit of faith, the fruit of Christ-likeness. We pray that you would get glory now, in Jesus' name, amen. I love the game of baseball, and because I'm a born and bred Minnesotan, I, I try at least once a summer to get to a Minnesota Twins game. His last, last year, we went to a game where the, the first 20,000 fans received a t-shirt, and um, I'm sure it was to keep things simple, but, but all the t-shirts were the same size. 
And uh, as fans entered the stadium, you know, everybody's putting on these T-shirts, and um, <laughs> it was entertaining. You know, some, some of them look like they're putting on a dress, and some are, you know, they're putting on their junior eye clothes and scrunched in there. And then for some, it just fit just right. Um, but it was a very clear picture to me of the fact that in, a, in the real world, under the sun, one size does not fit all. Similarly, Ecclesiastes, with its sometimes brutally honest voice, reminds us that we can't walk out into the world under the sun and just hand out one-size-fits-all shirts. Life under the sun is not that tidy. Contradictions abound with human beings and the world. And the preacher, so-called preacher, who's writing here, does not shy away from these difficulties and contradictions. We might be the kind of people that are prone to clean our house before guests arrive. Not, not all of you, I know. I've been to some of your houses. Um, you've been to my house. <laughs> um, some of us may be prone to clean our houses before guests arrive, but, but this preacher does not. He lets the house remain as it is, and he asks us to see it that way and to ponder what, what that reveals about us and about our place and about God. Zach Eswine, I've already referred to him. I'm going to quote him a few times here this morning, so get used to hearing his voice. He says that the preacher... And it's the writer of Ecclesiastes. The preacher isn't using this sermon to describe life as we expect it or as he desires it or as what good theology says that it should be. Rather, the preacher describes life as it actually presents itself under the sun. And I found this perspective, this commentary especially helpful. Pay attention to this. If... Proverbs, or if the book of Proverbs, if, the, if Proverbs is like math, mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood with melody and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle, unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with a mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man, plus God's love, still dies like the beast or the fool. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to, to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. And it's on account of this that Ecclesiastes regularly points out things 
that many of us would really prefer not to acknowledge. It takes us places that we, we'd really rather not focus on. This book is full of tension, and it purposefully, purposefully, intentionally sets out to demolish our pretense by confronting us with reality, reality of a fallen world. We aren't in Eden anymore. Now, before we settle in to have our pretense demolished, <laughs> let's look at a couple of the means by which God, through this writer, accomplishes that aim, beginning with the preacher himself. There's, there's significant in, uh, evidence here to conclude that the individual speaking to us is the man named Solomon, King Solomon. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, here's some clues, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom. And knowledge. Now, doesn't it sound like somebody that we know? Doesn't it sound like the guy who is, is, is described in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29? And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men. But now, if the author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon, then why the mystery? You know, why set aside one's name? Never refers to himself as Solomon. Why downplay one's credentials? Wouldn't attaching one's name in this case just add a little bit more horsepower in terms of authority? Well, this is Solomon speaking. And I would respond with, is it not in order to, or for the purpose of, leveling the playing field? Is it not to minimize pretense so that our humanity rather than our position or status is the one true thing that we all share in common? He's building a relationship with us. We're all on the same level here. A king... A king using preacher language that catches us off guard. And that's the whole point. 
In the same way, everyday people could hardly fathom the Messiah King stripping down, humbling himself, taking a towel, posture of a servant, kneeling to wash their dirty feet, so we find it strange, but attention-getting, to hear this preacher king communicate in such plain and human and garden variety, unvarnished terms. And he means to do so, I believe, in order that we all might hear and all might resonate with this writer as, as a fellow human being. He is addressing the human condition of all who live under the sun. He's not just speaking to a spiritual community. He's speaking to all. This humble preacher king is remarkably unpreachy. There's no highfalutin religious verbiage. He emits no holier-than-thou spiritual persona. Instead, he is what many in our day would describe as authentic. And in the best sense of that word, he models for us a raw honesty about what it is to be human post-Eden in a fallen world. And thus, in a very practical and I believe powerful and very useful and instructive way, the preacher is mentoring us, teaching us how to live life together as missionaries under the sun. Zach Eswine, again, he says, many of us have little idea of how to jettison our religious language and garb and to humble ourselves in creaturely ways as we sweat together with our neighbors on this parched earth. The preacher shows us how. From him we learn to listen, to represent without spin how people think and feel and act and to admit that we ourselves must weather the same conditions and that we too long to recover for ourselves a credible and honest answer to what troubles us. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes is modeling gospel fluency. He's a seasoned, he is a weathered old man who has been through more than his share of high points and low points in the storyline of his life. And assuming this is Solomon, and I think we should assume it's Solomon, we know that the author of this book, he, he rode the wave of God's favor and blessing to the very pinnacle of Israel's national history. He massed unimaginable wealth. He oversaw the construction of a spectacular imperial city. His political influence was peerless for his time. But, as is true in God's world, under the sun, the preacher's greatest influence, this preacher's greatest influence, 
emerged from his personal pathway through brokenness and failure and suffering. Let me say that again, because you've heard me say that a lot. But I think this is just another reiteration of it. As is true in God's world, in God's economy, in this world, under the sun, our greatest influence emerges surprisingly, shockingly, from out of this personal pathway that the providence of God has led us through brokenness and failure and suffering. Here is someone, here is someone from whom we can learn how to live. You know somebody who's suffered? You want to learn from them. Which leads to a second observation. And that is his literary approach, namely poetry. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, uh, as is true of many of the intervals, uh, interludes in this book, excuse me, it, it's written in Hebrew poetry. And, and poetry is the language of the heart, right? We've got some poets here. When one seeks to communicate with passion and poignancy, one does so in verse. And what are the first words? What are the, what are the first words recorded by this preacher poet? Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. These words are intended to shock the reader. And if hearing this preacher say, all is vanity, sometimes translated meaningless, all is meaningless, if that's unsettling, well then verse 3 is even more unsettling. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is a provoking, get-under-your-skin kind of a question. <laughs> and if that isn't enough to destabilize you, consider the preacher's unfiltered expressions of lament and cynicism. Look at verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What's been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. <laughs> This poem is from the pen of a spokesman for God. He's describing the life God sovereignly gives to each of us. He's describing, according to verse 13, the life that God sovereignly gives us as an unhappy business. 
Ecclesiastes 2.17, he writes, I hated all, all my toil, also translated life. I hated all my life. Chapter 6, verse 3 goes so far as to say that some of us would have been better off had we never been born. That's tempting right there, isn't it? To interpret such statements as perhaps an absence of faith. Maybe it's evidence of uh, that grace and spiritual fruit are, are no longer present in this preacher's life. It's just declined to the point of being undiscernible. We could be tempted to conclude that. Is this, is this guy going apostate? Totally. We would be mistaken to conclude that. For the style and the approach of the book of Ecclesiastes is it, it, it intentionally requires us to lean into discomfort. The, the main point of this book is not revealed to the end. <laughs> but almost said it. Um, it's, it's just not revealed to the end. The literary style, in other words, forces us to wade through 12 chapters of tension generated by poetry and proverbs, heightened and amplified by unanswered questions and unsettling speech, intensified further through gut-wrenching transparency before finally landing on the punchline of the entire book. But there is a method to this madness, and that is, in order to get to the truth, this writer wants us to see we have to be willing to take an honest, hard look at things we do not like. And we are, by nature, not so inclined to do that. One wise person has said, show me a person who has no patience for encountering a story of sin and brokenness, and I will show you a person impatient with the people with whom they live. In other words... In order to be a gospel-fluent people, we have to learn to wade slowly through the uncomfortable brokenness of life. Zach S. Wine again. Learning how to handle this book is an exercise in itself training us to wait and travel on amid the unanswered and everyday unpleasantness found in our real worlds. By taking up this method, the book intends to train us in our capacity for waiting upon God amid the uncomfortably unfixed. Great two words, right? 
be uncomfortably unfixed. Are you ready for this journey? Are you prepared to be trained to wait more patiently on the Lord and for the fulfillment of His purposes amid the uncomfortably unfixed? Here's a third observation. And, and this, now, now we'll get to the, the, to the preacher's perspective, right? This is where we drop down uh, into the content of the preacher's poetic introduction here. And, and the first thing to take notice of is, is uh, what does he mean when he says all is vanity? Yeah, a more literal translation of that word, vanity, would be the word breath, um, mist, vapor. If you translate it that way, then it says, everything under the sun is a breath. Think of a doctor's exam, right? put the stethoscope on your wherever back or chest, and they say, take a deep breath. And you go. And the preacher is saying, that's life. That's what life, that's what everything in life under the sun is life. Like, it, it's, it's just, it's short. That's it. Done. On the night that um, my son and daughter-in-law told us that they were pregnant, uh, <laughs> I, I was just so deeply affected. I just kind of sat there like this uh, for probably, I don't know, 20 minutes. Josh comes up, puts his arm around me finally. He says, well, are you okay? <laughs> I, I, was, I was thunderstruck. I was speechless. And, and, and really part of the reason uh, that I was so affected, I mean, besides obviously profound joy, um, because in that moment, in that moment, it was, it was as though my life in relationship to this sun, it just passed before my eyes. Just, whoosh, you know, I, I see his birth, I see his childhood years, I see his adolescence, I see his high school years, I see his independence, I see his emergence into manhood, I see his marriage, and now he's a father, and whoosh, that's it. And it hit me. It hit me. Life passes by just like that. Where did it go? You don't think seriously about life that way as a teenager or even a college-aged young adult. But by the midway point of life, By then, everybody knows. Everybody knows what the preacher says here is true. Everybody knows. Except in everyday life under the sun, everybody pretends that it isn't. 
we pretend that it's not true. We pretend that we're in control. We imagine that we're going to live long, productive lives. We believe we can change the world. We aim to accomplish something of lasting significance. And Ecclesiastes sets out to demolish our pretense by confronting us with reality. Oh, how we long for things to last forever. But instead, according to verse 4, a generation comes and a generation goes. End. And then the next generation. One commentator says, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind, here one minute, carried away the next. Sounds like my old favorite band, Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind. Look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. It's the season, right? Graduation. Probably you've gone to graduation ceremonies. You're hearing exhortation after exhortation to get out there and make a difference and go change the world. Well, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how life seems to elude all that. It eludes our grasp in terms of lasting influence. When was the last time you heard a graduation address on, you know, life is just like smoke. It's, it's there, it's physical, but you just try to get a hold of that and stick it in your pocket and keep it for later. That's what your life is like. How inspiring. If we try to gain control of the world and our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do and by what we can accomplish, we find out real quick, or at least by mid, midlife, that the control that we seek is like trying to put smoke in your pocket, keeping it for later. Think of it. I mean, why is it that the line that you don't join at Hy-Vee always is quicker than the one that you do. Why does it seem that it's, it's, it's the self-centered, angry, immature women that have no problem getting pregnant, while those who would make loving, tender-hearted parents, they, they have no problem. You know, they, they, they just can't have kids on their own. Why, why do people that you know and love die young and suffer chronic ill health while devils and dictators seem to prosper and live in prosperity into their old age. Why is there such an experience as midlife crisis? We pretend that we're in control and accomplish things of lasting significance, but at, our, at around age 40 to 45, you look back and you see that what we are and what we've done, it doesn't really amount to a whole lot. And nobody is going to remember us. <laughs> I, I saw recently again, somebody was 
had recorded the words of George Harrison, who at one time famously said that the Beatles were more, you know, more well-known and famous and influential in the world than Jesus. Now, there's probably a bunch of people here that don't know who George Harrison is or the Beatles. I read recently that, that Eugene Peterson, somebody told him that, that Bono quoted him. And he says, who's Bono? There might be somebody here that doesn't know who Bono is. Or Eugene Peterson. Who remembers? Done. The implied answer to the question in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 3 what gain is there? What's left over? What remains at the end? What's in the black at the end of a life full of investment and toil? What's the implied answer? Zero. Nothing. There's no gain. But not only is life brief and elusive, life under the sun is, it's repetitive. For, for all the activity that the world itself, the world itself, it doesn't seem to go or get anywhere. It's an illustration. It's, it's meant to teach us something. Look at verses 5 to 8 again. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, round, round, round goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So, the point is, is, as it is in the world, so it's always going to be. Sun chases its tail, wind goes round and round, water pours into the ocean, again and again, never fills the ocean, it just, it just keeps going. And as is humankind, so humankind will always be. We are as insatiable as the sea. We pour and we pour and we pour things, the things of this world into our eyes and into our ears. We never reach a point of complete satisfaction. And on, and on the one hand, our souls are continuously craving something new, new, new. But it's, but it's in this world of permanent repetition. There's never anything new. <laughs> and on the other hand, our souls are continuously craving something that, that, that of permanence. We want something that lasts. But the world's, it's, it's a world of constant change. There will be no remembrance of latter things yet to be. And so for all our effort, our, our souls will never find enduring satisfaction under the sun. And listen to this. Being a Christian does not stop any of that from being true. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's talking to everybody. Those who are far from God, those who are close to God. Our souls will never find enduring satisfaction under the sun. 
In fact, the preacher's aim is to jolt us and to jar us so that we stop pretending that. To stop pretending this is the reality in which we live. And that brings me to one last thing, and that is his purpose. If we don't live forever, or even long enough to make a lasting difference in the world, well then, how should we live? It takes the whole of Ecclesiastes to answer that question, so we're going to have to wait for it. Wait for it. preacher's argument is cumulative, and so we need to allow him, you know, like an artist applying his or her medium onto something on the canvas. Just He's going to show us bit by bit, piece by piece. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, it, it sketches a very fundamental point that accepting our end. Accepting our end is the first step in learning to live. Douglas Wilson says, A wise believer is a man or woman who knows the length of their tether. And it's not long. And that may seem ridiculously simplistic, but it is, it is massively significant when we stop and think how much energy we devote to not accepting it. To be human is to be a creature. To be a creature is to be finite. We're not God. We're not in control. We will not live forever. We will die. And it's right there. Right there where we are and will be led again and again by the preacher of Ecclesiastes to the true king, to the true son of David, that Solomon foreshadows. It was Jesus himself who said, one greater than Solomon is here. It's not surprising then in Solomon's writings to get a foretaste of Jesus. Jesus shocked the world with his style, his sayings, his parables, shocked the world with his sorrows and laments honest transparency. Jesus confronted complacent souls with provoking questions like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It's Jesus who points us to a different kind of gain. Different kind of gain. Saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's Jesus who points us to a different kind of water. Not the kind that leaves us unsatisfied though you drink and drink and drink. Saying, whoever drinks of that water, it's like pouring, the streams pouring into the sea. You're never going to be satisfied, but the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will be a spring welling up to eternal life. And doesn't preacher King Jesus walk with us into all the nastiest messes and brokenness of life? 
as well as call us to actually follow him there to the cross, to the ultimate place of injustice, unfairness, cruelty, where death seems absolutely, utterly meaningless and wrong, but where he says, it's fulfilled. Loved ones, Jesus is the gain this world cannot provide. Jesus is our wisdom beyond measure and breadth of mind. It's to Jesus that all the nations will come and hear the words of life. And in union with Jesus, we can say with hope and by His grace, in the world, in this world, there will be things that will be confounding. There will be tribulation, but we are people of good cheer because our King has overcome the world. Let's pray. And it's to this Christ, this Jesus, it's to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we now come to, we draw near to you. We trust you. We take hold of you. You came into this weird, broken, fallen world. You lived your life under the sun. You lived it by faith. You lived it as it was meant and designed by God to be. And then you died a sin-atoning death, which to the world looked utterly ridiculous, shameful. And yet in your dying, you fulfilled all the righteousness of God. You died to pay the penalty for our sins. And then you rose again. Conquering, victorious. By the power of the Spirit. And now in union with you by faith. Your perfect life. Can be counted to us. Credited to us. Your sin atoning death. It pays for our sins. The power that raised you from the dead resides within us so that in this broken life, this short life, this futile life under the sun, we can live for you and for your glory. In you, that's where meaning is. So we turn to you and we trust you. We love you. We worship you now. Be exalted, Lord Jesus. Amen.